Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Advocates are speaking out against Alabama's project to build two 4,000-bed prisons as the state moves ahead with the financing and construction plans. Two groups, the Communities Not Prisons Coalition and Justice Capital, issued press releases opposing the $725 million bond issue approved last week, part of the funding for the two prisons, which will cost an estimated $1.3 billion to build. The opposition to the prisons is not new, but it is the latest round in a years-old disagreement about whether new buildings are appropriate use of taxpayer dollars by a state accused by the U.S. Justice Department of holding men in dangerous, understaffed, and poorly managed facilities that violate their constitutional rights. Veronica Johnson, Executive Director of the Alabama Justice Initiative, part of the Communities Not Prisons Coalition, said the bond issue commits Alabama to unjust and ineffective criminal justice policies. Quote, these prison construction bonds are structured to mature as late as the year 2052, Johnson said. Do you know what that means? It means that this is a project to marry our state to mass incarceration for the better part of this century. It means that Alabamians, and Black Alabamians in particular, will continue to be incarcerated and brutalized by the Alabama Department of Corrections on a breathtaking scale. It means that Alabama residents like me will be paying these investors back, plus interest, for decades to come. A fire lit outside Donaldson Correctional Facility on Sunday was started by incarcerated men who say that staff failed to dispose of garbage piling outside of the prison. Video taken at the prison shows black smoke rising from a burning pile of garbage in the concrete yard, just feet away from the prison's kitchen. Based on what inmates said in the video, prison staff had not disposed of the roughly 20-yard-long heap of boxes, pallets, and trash bags for some time, although it's unclear exactly how long it sat there. Quote, they wouldn't take the trash out, so the inmates burned it, unquote, one of the men says in the video. In a conversation on Monday, a man incarcerated at Donaldson, who asked to remain anonymous because he feared retaliation from prison staff, said the trash had attracted pests that had come into the building. Quote, it's been going on for a while now, and had gotten to the point where maggots were crawling all in the hallways and rats and roaches are everywhere in here, he said. He says he thinks the issue stems from a shortage of workers. In the early morning of Saturday, June 18th, four prisoners escaped from the low-security federal prison satellite camp at FCI Petersburg in Hopewell, Virginia. At the time of this writing, three of the four prisoners have turned themselves in and one remains at large. All four prisoners were serving sentences ranging from 10 to 18 years for a combination of drug and possession of a firearm charges. On Friday, June 24th, two women detained at the Next Door Correctional Release Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee, quote-unquote, walked away from the facility. They were later recaptured on Sunday, June 26th in Nashville, Tennessee. On Wednesday, May 22nd, at least 31 detainees at the Clay County Detention Center in Liberty, Missouri, staged a protest in response to the prison serving cold, 
prepackaged meals for dinner in lieu of the standard hot meal. Liberty is a suburb of Kansas City. According to the Clay County Sheriff's Department, detainees in day rooms G and H were causing a disturbance and violating jail rules before guards ordered them to knock down. The protesters refused, continuing to protest until the Special Tactics and Response Team was deployed, which forced the protesting detainees to comply. According to the Sheriff's Office, the detainees caused no damage to the facility and no one was injured. Currently, the only information publicly available about this event comes from the Sheriff's Department. If you have more information about this event, please email us at info at This week on KiteLine, we return to Atlanta's proposed Cop City, a police training facility set to be built over a vast urban forest. People from across that city and the country have been organizing against its construction, which would make it the largest police training facility in the United States. People have been organizing protests in the streets, call-in campaigns, and holding down an ongoing occupation in the forest itself. For our coverage this week, we hear from Sasha Tico, an anthropologist living in Atlanta. Sasha tells us about the old Atlanta prison farm, a defunct facility whose ruins exist on the proposed site of Cop City. Sasha has been researching and exploring the forest where the prison farm was and tells us about its history and what the site represents on a broader level. My name is Sasha Tico. I live in Atlanta. I moved here in 2019 to start a PhD program in anthropology. So, so I started doing research kind of intensively on the history of the old Atlanta prison farm which was roughly like like almost 400 acres of land that is just south of the city limits. So it's technically in unincorporated DeKalb County in Georgia, um, just like five minutes from, from the official limits of the city of Atlanta, but it was run by the city of Atlanta. So it was a city-run um, prison, um, prison farm that was opened in 1919 and uh, kept in operation as a prison um, until roughly 1990 when they auctioned off the remaining livestock and equipment and phased out the, its use as a prison. At its peak, it housed roughly a thousand inmates and that was in the 50s and 60s was its peak uh, both in its capacity as a prison and in its output as a farm. So it was like the fields were fully tilled, fields, they're growing all kinds of vegetables, collard greens, okra, and also raising livestock like beef and pork for slaughter. And the food would mostly used to feed prisoners both in the prison farm and in the other city jail in downtown Atlanta. So it was put forth as a cost-saving measure for the prison system of Atlanta. After the 50s and 60s, the mayor at the time, Sam Lassell, started to close down the like farm operations because uh, there were like, I mean, for decades, decades reports of abuse on the farm of all kinds, which I can get into. There was no um, like hospital on site. Um, so there was very poor medical care. And People were getting sick, and it was it was sort of like too much of a liability to run, like financially speaking, um, legally speaking, for the city to run a fully operational farm. So they phased out the uh, vegetable production and 
but continued ra raising livestock um, up until the 90s. And then after like around 1990, although the, the precise dates are somewhat unclear still, after 1990, the, the land was basically left abandoned by the city. And that's how forest grew up, essentially. So there, the reason that there is a forest at all in that land is because, and a new growth forest specifically, is because it was farmland that was then abandoned. And so pine trees grew up and privet and all other kinds of both native and invasive species. It was used both informally and officially as a dump by residents and by the city and like strange objects on the city's part, such as the marble facade of the Carnegie Library, which was the first like public institution built in Atlanta after the Civil War. This big public library that when they dismantled it to build a new library, they dumped the marble facade just in the prison farm. So there's pieces of marble that just are covered in moss and living in the, living on the land now. And it's also been used informally as a dump by residents, I think especially after the, the two, after 2008 with the housing collapse, because I've seen in, like in my ethnographic pseudo-archaeological research, a lot of the domestic items that are dumped are sort of like could be dated to around that time. It's been left as a just sort of as a woodlands used by all kinds of people. It's also has lots of trails. Part um, half of it is maintained as a public park with trails. It's also used by dirt bike enthusiasts and like all kinds of people who just like to walk around in the woods and get away from the heat and noise and mess of the city. And there's been various efforts over several decades since about 2000 to either get some sort of historical landmark status or you know have the city of Atlanta develop it or maintain it more properly as a public park. And in 2017, the city of Atlanta commissioned a big report and study from like environmentalists and uh, architectural firms to draft plans to turn the old Atlanta prison farm and surrounding woodlands into a regional trail system and park system. And they touted this as going to be one of the like symbols of Atlanta's progress into the 21st century. And uh, they like made a big splash about how Atlanta is going to be this green city that's preserving its tree canopy, et cetera, et cetera. And then four years later, this plan gets kind of thrown out and they announce two plans to develop it around the same time. So the biggest and most publicly known plan is the Cop City plan. So this is the city's plan to cut down, it's roughly 80 acres of a 380-acre property. I think the exact acreage has been disputed. Initially, initial proposals was to cut down 150 acres of trees to build what would be the largest police training academy in the country. And the plans for the police training academy initially included um, like a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad and like sort of most 
was egregiously a mock city, uh, including which is still part of the plan, mock city with like fake city streets where they can practice crowd control and political suppression of riots and protests, essentially. And so it's because of the mock city as like a central feature of the police training academy that uh, the movement to defend the forest has dubbed this plan Cop City. And then the other development plan in the works is a land swap between DeKalb County and a movie production studio that was called Black Hall Studios and just recently, as of like two weeks ago, changed its name to, I think, Shadowbox Studios, which wants to uh, cut down 40 acres of what is currently uh, Entrenchment Creek Park, which is a public park, uh, to build what would be the largest movie production soundstage complex in the country. And that plan, the Shadowbox Studios development plan, is currently held up by a lawsuit um, because it's very possibly illegal to do what the DeKalb County did, which is basically hand over public park to a private company for their own development. There's a lot that we don't know about the history of the prison farm. I've been doing like the little digging that I can do so far, which has mostly been looking at newspaper archives and also talking to just local folk historians, people, neighbors who, who have memories of the prison farm or have sort of collected stories themselves. And there are other people who've been doing research, and I want to shout out the Atlanta Community Press Collective. Um, they have a website where they regularly updating with archival documents and documents that they, they got from public record access requests. So there's like a lot of people who've been doing a little research they can, and the more we dig, the more mysteries come up about like the precise dates of when aspects of the prison farm were phased out. There's a lot of gaps in the record. And I think that this in itself is a like primary reason not to cut down this forest because of how much is unknown and mysterious about it still. The more I poke at the prison farm history and the more I spend time in the forest poking around at the objects that are littered on the ground, the more connections are suggested between the failures of integration in the city after the formal desegregation of public facilities and the continuation of bonded labor and exploitation of uh, both land and labor since the prison farm was open. I wonder about why this forest in particular was selected for the Cop City plan, especially because it seems so blatantly egregious and very expensive to cut down a whole forest to build this training facility. To like begin to try to understand what role this prison farm had in the workings and governance of the city of Atlanta in the 20th century, and what's sort of unique about anti-prison struggles and in the South is that this is like a site where formal slavery, formal segregation, and then 
formal emancipation and formal desegregation were very literally like fought over and worked out. And the prison farm had everything to do with, from what I, you know, my interpretation of it, the prison farm had everything to do with policing uh, the racial geography of the city. So it's like a prison on the outskirts of the city that was used to remove people who disobeyed the racial geography and racial order and class geography and class order of the city of Atlanta. What I found mostly through reading newspaper reports from the prison farm, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, is that most of the inmates had been arrested and sent to the prison farm for crimes like public inebriation, loitering, and trespassing, all of which are social practices like drinking, like standing around, hanging out with your friends, like walking around, <laughs> walking onto a, you know, uh, just like walking around in a, in, a, in a park or through a neighborhood that are crimes only because they disrupt a certain kind of racialized and racial order of the city. Um, and so something like, something like, you know, at certain points in, in the 70s, there's articles that were saying something like 85% of the inmates were there for charges of public drunkenness and were people who are regularly shuffled in and out of the prison farm. So in the 50s and 60s, if someone was arrested for public inebriation, they were taken to the city stockade and then given, like, they would see a judge and given a choice. I think it was like, you could pay $13 or spend 15 days laboring on the prison farm. And so people who couldn't afford to pay $13 would choose the 15-day stay on the prison farm. And so, and, and those people were regularly, or like many people who were regularly being picked up for uh, drinking or just standing in the wrong place at the wrong time and sent to the prison farm. In 1965, a reporter for the Atlanta Constitution, Dick Hebert, went undercover to investigate the conditions of the prison farm because the Atlanta Constitution had received letters from inmates or, or former inmates who were talking about the unsanitary conditions, the abusive labor practices. There's like many instances, reports of people who were beaten. Um, there are reports of uh, women who are raped. And there were also six solitary confinement cells. Like these are people who are getting arrested for drinking in public and then, then sent to solitary confinement. This history is not that long ago and it's, it's, it's quite recent. It's still there on the prison farm land itself. It's in the forest and you can see it. There are some old buildings from the prison that are falling apart, but still on, on site. But even the topography of the land archives this history because it can still see some of the terracing from when it was terraced for cotton farming, I think. And there's also erosion in the forest because of cotton farming, which like cotton plantation farming is, tends to erode the soil very quickly. Even the fact that, as I was saying, it, it is a new growth forest, that, that these are pine trees growing there, like 
is sort of a way to understand that this was once a prison farm. In cutting down this forest, first of all, just in cutting down this forest, the city will be cutting down the material evidence of the prison farm, which like cuts out the ability of just like any resident of Atlanta to start asking the kinds of questions that I started asking by walking around the forest, which is like, why is this ecology the way it is? Why are these pine, why is it mostly pine trees? You know, why are there these weird dips in the land? Turns out it's it's like because it was terraced by hand, likely by prison laborers who were working under slave conditions. And if that forest is no longer there, then the kind of like ecology and material evidence that prompts questions that lead to thinking through this labor and slave history in Atlanta is that opportunity is lost. And so I, I sort of believe very strongly that in order to kind of think through these very long, very entrenched problems of American history, we need like objects and land and landscapes that we can engage with and start to ask questions about. Because otherwise we're just sort of receiving education from like some experts or not receiving it at all. When I opened the front page of like major mainstream newspapers, and also when I just talk to my friends and neighbors and like family members, like there's this overwhelming sense of uncertainty, insecurity, anxiety, worlds are, the world is ending, the future is not possible, like there's no sense of future anymore. You know, even like the wealthy billionaires are just like, they're just kind of like wildly sown chaos and seeing if it makes them a dollar, you know? So I think that, that that is a kind of an overarching sense. I think like humanity is like often is like faced with how do we meet insecurity? Um, how do we meet like the, the sense that our future as a species or our future as individuals or our future as like people who walk this earth is not guaranteed and this is not something we can kind of like predictably plan for and this is why like societies like like constantly re reaching for policing again and again even when basically become like a liberal accepted truth that policing is racist and corrupt and violent and you know basically makes uh, very few people safer but even people who believe that sort of still reach for, for the kinds of techniques and technologies and social forms that resemble the police, if not actually the police themselves. My experience of spending time in this forest and walking around a very mundane, very unspectacular, but nonetheless beautiful forest that has grown up on land that was formerly and recently used to effectively enslave people, to work them in some cases to death, is humbling and also quite, in certain ways, inspiring because it's a, it's like a kind of, and this is why I also find the forest defense movement humbling and inspiring because it's a movement that's very much happening. It's sort of like converting the ruins of 
capital and, and slavery and, and bonded labor into a space of like fellowship and imagination. To me, what I see in the forest defense movement and in the forest itself is another way for meeting uncertainty and instability and, and insecurity, not to clutch your pearls and, and retreat into your home and never leave and build walls and build prisons and fund the police, but to kind of like try to see what you and your friends and neighbors and family members and loved ones can do in the wreckage. And I think that as I've been thinking of the forest as a ruins and also as like a cemetery in both literal and, and more metaphorical ways. I think that spending time dwelling in like the site, a site of ruin and also a site of memory, dwelling in that space can help us learn how to dwell in uncertainty and in, in futures that are unpredictable. Another sort of mystery of the archive that, that keeps coming up is the possible presence of unmarked graves on the prison, old prison farm site, which there's enough to go on to like a, kind of assume that there are unmarked graves on the site. And that's because there is some like some records of prisoners who died while in prison. In one case, a prisoner died from like exposure, excessive contact with um, an insecticide that the prisoners would handle to get like parasites off cattle that they're raising. The common practice in the prison system was to try to contact when a prisoner died, but if they couldn't, if they couldn't contact closest kin or if the close or, or if kin didn't want to essentially pay for the burial of the prisoner, the prisoner would be buried in the pauper's grave, which were usually unmarked. There is a marked, like a, a sort of a kept cemetery sort of just on like the north end of the former prison farm site. And it's also was sort of common practice to bury the so-called pauper's graves would be sort of in the vicinity of the graves of the more well-to-do who could afford headstones and such. So it's, it's quite possible that there is, that there are unmarked graves on the site and there's been discussion, sort of perennial discussion amongst people involved in the movement to defend the forest around how to and, and whether to find um, the unmarked graves. I'm not very optimistic about the about actually finding the un, sort of the material evidence of, of grave sites, but I think that you know as an anthropologist who I, I study like a lot of what I have you know studied and, and read in my studies is like on burial practices and ritual around around burial and taking care of grave sites. To think that a cemetery, all a cemetery is is a repository of bones, essentially, like um, is a very uh, reductive and limited and secularized and bureaucratized and modern way of thinking about what a cemetery is. And the reason I say that is because I, I think that it's you know, if it's safe to assume that there are um, actual burials on the site, that there were burials on the site, it's also worthwhile to sort of proceed accordingly and take care of the site as one would a cemetery, which 
is not just a repository of bones, but a place of reckoning with death and sort of uh, the ultimate unknown. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.